Good morning. It's very good to see you guys. Glad you're here. Um, I want to mention this. I haven't talked about this in a couple of weeks, but we have scripture journals that are the entirety of the book of Exodus. Uh, we bought a, a lot of these before we began this series. I know many of you use these because we usually find at least one in the seats every week, and then we try to figure out who it is because you don't write your names in the front. So maybe do that. Uh, but if you want one of these, I think we have a handful left that'll be available at the Connect table this morning. And they're free. They're a gift to you. So I know a number of you have not been with us since the very beginning of this series earlier this year. If you'd like a copy of this so that you can work through it and write in it and take notes and really try to turn this into something you could reference later in the future, uh, that's our intention behind it as well in, in giving you one. So uh, we'll be in Exodus chapter 8 today. That's page 34 if you are in the scripture journal. And last week, in response to Egypt's decades-long, brutal abuse of the nation of Israel, God dispensed his first judgment onto Egypt, onto Egypt's pharaoh, onto Egypt's people, onto the gods of Egypt. Many people in our modern church context don't understand that each of the plagues is not random. God didn't just decide to use blood or use frogs, which is what we'll look at today, because it just kind of came to mind. These are direct attacks, these are dismantling attacks on the gods of Egypt. And our task is to try to figure out what those gods represent, what is their dominion in Egyptian society, and then discern, if we can, what the dominion of that idol would be in our modern society. And so, last week, Yahweh judged the Nile. He turned it to blood. In some ways, the Nile River, it was like a temple, like a hundreds of miles long temple that ran the full length of the nation of Egypt. And one of the most important gods in the lives of the Egyptians was Hapi, Hapi being the god of the fertility of the land. I used some uh, visual language last week that I won't repeat now, but you're remembering it, so I think it stuck with you. Some of you are giggling a little bit. Um, Hapi was considered to be the god who controlled what we might call gross domestic profit. The national economy was tied to this one God, and so because he was representative of the Nile and the Nile was representative of him, when God goes after the Nile, he is really assaulting the, the identity of the Egyptians and the misplaced identity because the Nile was the religious center of the country. It was the economic and political, artistic, the identity center of these people. And last week, God decided to turn it all to blood. And it was all anybody could talk about in Egypt. I mean, it was in their Instagram stories. They were live-tweeting it. The liberal news blamed it on the conservatives. The conservative news blamed it on the liberals. God did this wholesale, nationally. And he did it in front of the people of Egypt. He did it during the day, in the early morning, when many people who were religious would have come to the edges of the river to make an offering to Hapi or simply to bathe, to gather water for the day. In an instant, it becomes blood. Not like blood, literally blood. And it was a kind of judgment. So why? Why would God judge these people in this way? Why does he care where people derive their identity from? Is that his business? I mean, yeah, he made us. Maybe you don't even believe that. But if you believe that, maybe you have sort of this um, clockmaker idea of who God is, that he wound the world up and set systems into motion and then stepped back to see what would happen, that the world is sort of his great experiment. The Bible tells a different story. In God's word, God takes credit not only for uh, being the source of life, but more personally than that, God claims to be the only reliable source of identity for any of us. This is one of the most basic claims that God makes about himself in the Bible. And in the New Testament, which is not when the story of Exodus is happening, several thousand years later, in the New Testament, Jesus continues this trend of God, that he assaults and rejects and destroys our identity idols as well. That's where we were last week. That was the application that we made, that in Christ we see answers and responses to what our postmodern identity idols are. From this perspective, you can now see the pattern of interaction between God 
and Pharaoh, his people, and you and I. And this is the pattern that we'll trace for the remaining nine plagues. In each of the following plagues, God will dismantle one of the gods of Egypt. And each time he knocks one down, what you and I will experience is God also knocking down an idol of our own culture. So that's our expectation as we approach Exodus chapter 8. Let's read about some frogs, beginning in verse 1. The end of chapter 7, the author of Exodus tells us that the blood of the Nile ran for a week. Seven days, people got up every morning wondering if they'd have water again, and they didn't. And finally, God removes that plague, and then he speaks to Moses in Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord, and where it says the Lord in your Bible, you see that that word is capitalized. I'm going to use God's name, because that's what that is. I'm going to say Yahweh, even though we don't know exactly how to say it. I just think it's more personal, and I think it's what he intends, instead of just the position of being in Lord there. So, then Yahweh said to Moses, he spoke to Moses and said, I want you to go into Pharaoh, and I want you to say to him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. This is the first time that God uses the word plague to describe what he's doing. Up till now, he's called these things signs and wonders. Uh, I think he can probably tell that from the Egyptians' perspective, these are mostly negative things, and so now he's embracing that concept. Verse 3, here's what it's going to look like when this happens. This is what a plague of frogs looks like on a national scale. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that will come up into your house. They will come into your bedroom onto your bed. How personal is that? Into your bedroom, onto your bed, into the houses of your servants and of your people, and into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. Now, Alaskans are weird about sourdough bread. I've learned this since I moved here. Can you imagine opening up your sourdough starter, and it's, there's just a frog family in there hanging out, looking at you? You've had it sealed. You don't know how it happened. This is the plague, okay? So he says that in verse 4. The frogs shall come up on you, on your people, on all of your servants. And then there's sort of a narrative break between verses 4 and 5. We don't know exactly what happens. We can assume because God goes ahead and acts on this threat that Pharaoh doesn't listen and doesn't let his people go. But verse 5, Moses is moving us ahead to God's command now to actually enact the plague. So here it comes. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt, exclamation point. God doesn't use a lot of exclamation points. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up, and they covered the land of Egypt. Verse 7. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts, and they made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now, just a question here that I have for these guys. Who does that help? If you have too many frogs, do you need a few more? Like, Pharaoh's like, can you guys do this? And they're like, look, six more. Now we have a million and six frogs. Anyway, some of you have asked some questions, just so you know I'm listening to you, about who these magicians are and where they derive their power. We're going to go there next week. I don't have time to get into it this week, but next week the magicians are going to say some things. They're going to acknowledge Yahweh, and we're going to get some insight into where they get their power, who they are, how it works. So just if you can bear with me, we're going to get there eventually. But So Pharaoh turns to his magicians. Can you fix this? They can't. They can only make more frogs. Verse 8, here's his response. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron. He said to them, please plead with Yahweh. This is the very first time that Pharaoh has acknowledged that Yahweh has any control, any say in his life at all. Plead with him to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and here's what I'll do. I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to Yahweh. Moses said to Pharaoh, very interesting, verses 9 and 10 here. I'm going to read these slowly to you. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased or you may command me when I am to plead for you. And when I should plead for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. Moses is saying to Pharaoh, you get to pick when this happens. 
Now, why would he do that? Why would it matter to Pharaoh whether he has a say in this? Is Moses submitting to Pharaoh in his life? No, not at all. Verse 10 is Moses' explanation. So Pharaoh answers and says, do it tomorrow. And Moses says, it will be as you say. Why? So that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh, our God. In other words, you're not going to be able to explain this away as a natural phenomenon. You're not going to be able to justify it away with your magicians and your pseudoscience by picking the time, Pharaoh. God will do exactly as you've asked him to do at exactly the time you've asked so that there's no doubt in your mind that he is who he says he is. Which is why, when we read Exodus, we have to remember God's primary goal is to make himself known. That's what he's trying to do. So the frogs will go away from you, away from your houses and your servants and your people, and they will be left only in the Nile. Verse 12, so Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. Very interesting. The word cried in Hebrew there is the same word that the people of Israel use in chapter 2, verse 23, when they cry out to God. So Moses is not just going through the motions. He is actually on his face, on his knees, on behalf of his oppressor, begging that God would deliver him, believing that his oppressor will keep his word and then deliver God's people. And the Lord did, according to the word of Moses. The frogs died in the houses, they died in the courtyards, they died in the fields. It's implied they also died in the ovens and the kneading bowls and the beds and the bedrooms. And the people gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. Of course it did. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. He would not listen to God's people, just as Yahweh had foretold. And why would he harden his heart? I think it's pride and I think it's embarrassment. When he realizes how much power God has, to Pharaoh all this does is raise the stakes. It ups the ante. Um, I used to live in southeast Texas. I was born in east Texas, moved to southeast Texas for my first full-time job with my wife, and we lived a few hundred miles from the Gulf of Mexico. And if you've never been to like the Galveston, Houston area of Texas, it's just a big swamp. I don't know why anybody decided to move there. It's nasty. The beach is not nice. All the trash from the whole Atlantic Ocean just washes up into Galveston in big piles, just like pieces of glass and broken plastic and syringes and stuff. Like there are days where the people at the beach will be like, nobody can get in the water, not because it's stormy, not because there's sharks. There's just too much trash. Like you'll die. It'll poison your body. So that's where we lived. And there was a river. The Colorado River ran through the town that we lived in. Very muggy, very warm, moist, damp, gross. Like if you were to take a towel, get it wet in the sink, throw it in the dryer for like 10 seconds, and then put it on your back, that's what it was like just to walk around outside all the time. Just nasty. Well, frogs love that. That's like their favorite thing. That's their vacation spot. So once a year, our big Colorado River would flood. It would come up out of its banks. And then when it would recede, it would leave frogs all over the city. Like, they'd be in the streets, we'd be running them over in our cars, they'd be in the trees, all over the ground. And in the springtime, if you had like a rain jacket hanging in your garage, or if you left your shoes on the porch, the odds were pretty high that there's going to be a frog inside when you go to put them on. So on more than one occasion, this is true, I promise you this is true, on more than one occasion, I'd be in a hurry, run out the back door, grab my tennis shoes off the porch, slide them on, get them about 80% of the way on my foot, and then feel something warm and wet and reptilian or amphibian, I guess, in the toe of my shoe, okay? I'm a pretty optimistic guy. I have a, I have a pretty strong stomach, and uh, having to rinse frog parts out of your socks will mess your week up, your whole week. Like, it'll just stick with you, okay? So I have compassion for the Egyptians. They have frogs in their shoes to the 10th degree, but why? Why is God using frogs? It would be easy to be overly simplistic and assume it's because they were just there. And there are many people who've tried to science this out and connect it to the flood season, but the idea that the frogs have made it into the kneading bowls of these people, this is something that would have been sealed up. This implies a miracle. 
This, I'd say it's actually explicit, that, that God did something intentionally on purpose that wasn't just a product of the rainy season. I believe God used frogs because God's dominance and control over Egyptian frogs communicates to the Egyptians then, to us now, God's dominance and control over fertility and over the family. The frog-headed goddess of Egypt was called Heket, and she was revered. And like Hapi last week, Heket is a goddess who would have been worshipped throughout all of Upper and Lower Egypt, from the Nile River Delta all the way down to Middle Africa. And in the pantheon of Egyptian gods and goddesses, she was considered to be the wife of another Egyptian god whose name was Khnum. And Khnum, uh, you'll hear a little bit of Romans 9 in this mythology, uh, Khnum was believed to have taken uh, babies before they were born and formed them on a potter's wheel out of clay. And then he would hand them to Heket, and Heket was the goddess who oversaw the pregnancy and the actual birth itself. Now in most of the world, for most of human history, childbirth was extremely dangerous. The very low survival, risk of, or survival rate of both the mother and the child. And so in, in Egypt, many, many cries were made to Heket. The worship of Heket, sacrifices to Heket, very serious, very important. If you were to neglect Heket, and one of the ways you could do that is by stepping on or killing a frog, if you were to do that, you might bring a curse on your family. You might actually legitimately believe that you would never be able to have kids again. You and your spouse might quit trying because of how seriously and severely you would take that curse. Better to not become pregnant and lose the baby than to even risk that Heket would have her vengeance on your family. So Hapi is sort of like a positive god in this pantheon. Heket sounds like she might be, but the more you dig into her mythology, the more you realize she had an iron grip on the hearts of these people, especially the women of this culture, because of their fear of what she would do if they were even a little bit out of step. And this is a place where we should see a distinction between our God and the gods of the people around us. If we take that same idea and we allow our wicked hearts to translate it onto Yahweh, the living God, we failed. God is different than that. God is not like Heket. He's not looming over our shoulders waiting for us to misstep one time so that he can have his vengeance on us. Not at all. He's gracious and he's kind. And it's actually kind of him to go after this goddess because I believe his attempt is to set the hearts of the people free. They're enslaved. They're stuck. They have no other hope. They believe that they have to be perfect or else. Heket was the goddess who was believed to decide when women would become pregnant, if those pregnancies came to term, and whether or not the mother or child lived or died in the process. Her domain was the womb and the human family. If you think back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, specifically in chapter 1, I told you as we were reading a minute ago that God's people cried out to him in chapter 2. Well, the reason they did that is clear in chapter 1. The Pharaoh, who is the father of the current Pharaohs, it's a little confusing, there's two Pharaohs in the book of Exodus. The first Pharaoh is an oppressor. He's domineering, he's angry, he's a nationalist, he's a racist, he's bigoted, he's, he's a sexist at different points, he belittles women, he belittles their role, and so he decides that the Israelite people have become too big for him to tolerate anymore. And his method, his plan for keeping them underneath his foot, keeping his dominance over them so that Egypt can maintain its position, its prosperity, is genocide. It's its own kind of holocaust against God's people. And he decides that instead of going after those who are already grown up and strong, he'll make this political play that maybe he can hide behind, he can get his PR team to figure out a way to spin the story in the news, and he'll have the baby boys killed as they're born. And when you read that story, you don't know anything about the gods of Egypt yet. We haven't seen our God judge those gods, and so we can't make the religious connection. But when we get to chapter 8, we realize that the pharaoh of Egypt is making a deal with Heket when he has those babies killed. It's a sacrifice. It's an attempt on his part to appease a God who has dominance over the family and to do what he believes she would have him do. 
which is to end the lives of his enemies and to do it on the birthing table. He believes that Heket will bless that. Furthermore, when he fails to have that work because the Israelite midwives are too faithful to their God and won't obey his wickedness, then he appeals to the Nile River. So he brings Hapi into this thing. And how does God respond to these things? With judgment. He fills the Egyptians' homes with the living image of their fertility idol. How ironic. You want Heket? I'll give you Heket, our God says. I'll give you millions of her. She can come into your homes. I'll put her in your bed where you think she belongs. In your bedroom, she'll be all over your bodies, not just domineering over your womb and you won't be able to get rid of her. And what's so interesting about this to me is that these Egyptian frogs are revered, so the Egyptians can't actually do anything about it. They believe that by killing the frogs or getting rid of them or having an exterminator come to their house that they might get on the wrong side of Heket's favor. And so they're stuck. This is the reason why the most powerful man in the world has to appeal first to some magicians and then to, to two Hebrew slave prophets in order to get the frogs gone. It's not like he doesn't have an army. They could go out in the streets and kill all the frogs and get rid of them, but they believe that they can't afford to do that or else. What I want you to understand is as God multiplies their foolishness in their midst, what he's giving them is an opportunity to see clearly the destination that their idolatry takes them to. He's just magnifying what they already believe. He's making it big enough that they can feel it, that they can see it, that they can sense it. And that's what God always does. He comes into our lives. He identifies idols that we think we don't have. We defend ourselves. We separate ourselves away from, from, oh, these are the big bad idols of culture. We would never bow down to those. And then God goes, well, let me zoom in a little bit here. See, it's actually taken root in this part of your life, in this part of your heart, in this area of your mind, the way you think about yourself, the way you view other people. The story in Exodus 8 is told in such excruciating detail so that you and I can take a look in the same ideological mirror that God held up in front of the Egyptians. He gave them an opportunity to see what their foolishness looked like at a national scale, but what they did is instead of seeing themselves in that ideological mirror and admitting how screwed up their religious system was and then repenting, instead they chose to just suffer and suffer and suffer in the name of their idols. So church, I would invite you not to waste this opportunity. You have a chance in the frogs of Egypt to see idols that may be present in your own life, and you can make a different decision. I believe that God's assault on Heket in Exodus 8 is an assault on our society's idol of family. So that's where we're going now. Our families, both our family of origin, where we come from, as well as the family that we hope to build someday or we may be actively building now, these are idols in our society. These are gods of our modernity, of our common culture. And though we have new temples, we have new rituals, dating apps, singles meetups, birthing clinics, planned parenthood, I see some of us, even disciples of Jesus, still bowing down to Heket, and I believe that Jesus has a better way. So I have three temptations that I wanna share with you that the idol of family will invite you to believe. These are things that your culture, your society are desperate to get you to bow down to and to allow to run your life. First, you are tempted to believe that without a family, your life is insignificant. This is a temptation for people who want families but don't have them. If you're single and you long for marriage or if you are a couple who longs for children, this is something that you need to, excuse me, to know that your heart will be predisposed to bow down to. You're going to have to work against this in your life. I believe that most of us have a propensity toward what I'll call familial idolatry. And this is, I think, the residues of the 1950s nuclear family showing up even in our modern, even our postmodern American dream. Even if you're postmodern enough to be skeptical of the 20th century family model, 
what I know is true is that our society, the world that you live in, will only clap louder for you as you walk deeper into rhythms and rituals that elevate your family or your family responsibilities above Jesus in your heart and life. What I mean is where you put your family over and above your commitment to Christ, all the culture will say is yes and amen. They would label you as cruel for not doing that in your life. If Jesus was ever more important to you than your children, you would be considered almost an animal, living by instinct, having no compassion. Do you not have a heart? I think that's a false dichotomy. I think that we are supposed to be very, very careful about the way that we lead and love our families, but that comes through the filter of who Christ is. If it's all about Jesus, then even our kids, even the way we raise them, speak to them, our dreams for them, the future that they have, that is oriented, as long as they're in our homes, around Christ himself. We are tempted to believe that without a family, our lives are insignificant. So how does this happen? Because for some of you, you're rolling your eyes and thinking, yeah, yeah, I've heard the Bible verses about being single, I get it. But how do we reach a place where we believe that we need a family or we're not really all here yet? We're incomplete, we're unable to do the things that we should be doing. Well, first I think we have to elevate the idea of family to an unsuitably high place in our lives. And I think this happens relatively naturally, a number of different ways. This can happen just simply from personal insecurity in your life. You're just a person who, does, who just feels shaky. You just don't feel like you've really got a lot going on and you want somebody else. You feel a need to have somebody else. I would argue that you might be trying to fill the God-shaped hole in your soul with a human being, but that doesn't matter for the sake of this argument. Something is driving you personally. Now, if it's not that, it could be your family of origin. You could have a well-meaning mother or father or an aunt or uncle or grandparents, even an older sibling, who every time you see them, they say, you got a girlfriend yet? You got a girlfriend yet, right? They snicker, they laugh, they think it's a joke. It's not a joke to you. It's desperately serious to you. It's what you think about all the time. It isn't funny. It shouldn't be mocked. Or you have a, an older relative in your family, probably one of your parents, who you're newly married, and every time you see them, they pull you aside and they go, I don't want to be overbearing, but I know we joke about this, but really, when, am, when are you going to make a grandbaby for me? And they just slowly tighten that vice on you as if it's not already an assault you're under from every angle. And if not those things, then you may have had this experience where you find yourself uh, driving on the road of singleness alongside all these people that you love and value. You've built a friend group. It's come from a Bible study or some organization that you're a part of. And slowly and over time, you feel your single friends pull off and exit into marriages. And before you know it, you're the only one on the highway, it seems like. And you're just going. And you're not even sure if you want to anymore. Regardless, we reach a point where we begin to believe that we're lacking something that we need. That's what I'm getting at. That's the heart behind this. And once that happens, that becomes a shadow in our lives. It becomes a shadow that overshadows all the good that is happening. It can become paralyzing to us in our ability to follow God and to trust him, to believe that he's real. And so what we do is we live in that shadow and then we watch the people around us advertise online how happy and fulfilling their new marriages or their young children have caused them to be. Every time we log on to Instagram, which statistically for most of us is more than once a day, we are reminded of how far we have been left behind. Uh, four years ago, in 2017, Crossway, who publishes the ESV Bible, the translation that we use at this church, they surveyed 7,000 readers about their desire to have a family, to be a part of a family someday. And I have some statistics I want to share with you. Um, of those 7,000 people surveyed, 97% of men and 90% of women of all ages said that they wanted to be married. 
76% reported that they think about marriage often or even constantly. That was a category that people actually selected on an anonymous survey. Yes, I constantly think about marriage, whether I have one, what will happen. 53% said that they actually feel worry about finding a spouse. 42% feel defined by their lack of a spouse. 58% are discouraged. 34% are frustrated at God. And half of them are regularly tempted to idolize the marriage they do not have. Now, just for, for reference, for context, church, these are our people. Non-Christians don't go to crossway.com. They don't. They don't want to. They're not looking for a better version of the Bible that's a little more true to the original languages, okay? They're not there. These are people who believe that Jesus is at least important, if not the most important thing in their life. And this is the honest truth, that many of us who find ourselves in this season are struggling with it. It's not passive, it's active. It's all around us. It's aggressive. It comes from the outside of the church in, and it even comes from the inside out. Now, why does this matter? Why does God care about this? Why would the idolatry of family, for those who are without a spouse or without children, be something God would attack in the form of a plague of frogs in the Old Testament? Well, the same Crossway survey went on to say that those who are unmarried and who spend significant amounts of their time worrying about a spouse are twice as likely to say that they are unable, unable, to follow Jesus in obedience, twice as likely to say that as those who are unmarried yet are content. And of course they're twice as likely to say that, right? Is that really that surprising? I hope it's not to you. I hope you're not so insulated from the realities of human existence that you don't think that this could happen. This is obvious. It's logical. In this society, even in a modern church subculture, we hold up marriage as a goal for everybody, for all people. We giggle and we gossip when our single friends go on dates or even sit next to each other at church on a Sunday morning. And we sometimes even invade the dating lives of those who are without a family and push them to date recklessly, sometimes even against God's will for their life, because we also value the family in a way that could supersede the place of Jesus in the life of another one. We spend more time talking to our single friends about who they're going to get with than whether they've been with Jesus. That's what I'm saying. And so for those who are married and desire children but have been unable to have them, this is, it's just as devastating. I'm using singleness as an example, but any form of family that we lack, it can be devastating to us. It can be incredibly distracting from our call to follow Jesus. And church, those of us who are in a happy marriage, or at least one that's acting like it is, we have children and maybe we don't uh, appreciate them the way that we should, those of us that are outside of singleness, outside of this temptation, we are not helping when we treat people without a family like they're incomplete. We're not helping We cannot act surprised when we say that long enough and eventually those people begin to believe it about themselves. But I believe Jesus can help us. In Matthew 19, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about marriage. And the context of the conversation is that in the Old Testament kind of Jewish world, which Jesus is born into, there's a lot of good reasons, good reasons, not really, but socially good, acceptable reasons for a man to leave his wife. Men back then treated women kind of like people treat cars today. They would get a new one when the old one felt a little bit worn out to them. And so Jesus speaks harshly against that. He's aggressive about it. He says there's only a few good reasons to do it, and it involves trauma, it involves a severing of the covenant. And so after he's done unpacking that, his disciples, who were born into this world where women are somewhat disposable, they say this to him in verse 10. This is mind-boggling to me. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, then it would be better not to marry. Ouch. That's not good. They're saying, well, Jesus, if you're stuck with a woman for your whole life, good grief. 
Why would we even marry? What is the point? Now, Jesus, as he often does, doesn't actually address that concern. He'll do that later. But the next thing he says has to do with those of us who haven't found a family yet or may never. He says, not everyone can receive what I'm about to say, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs. You can read that as people who've abstained from sexual relationships. These are people who've been this way from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. It's interesting that Jesus has to sort of qualify his statement at the end like that. He rarely does that with his disciples. He almost always gives them direct commands and expects them to live it out. But he realizes he's speaking to a mixed bag, some of whom are already married. He's not trying to encourage divorce in their hearts. He just finished speaking against that. He also understands that some of them will become married. And so this is a, a kind of a smaller and more specific group of people, but Jesus seems to think that there is some merit, some value in a life lived alone. If that's not clear, hear from the Apostle Paul, who echoes Jesus' words in his first letter to the early church in Corinth. He says, now as a concession, but not a command, I say this to you. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God. Gift, catch that. One of one kind, one of another, and to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So Jesus himself, the most important person any of us will ever meet, and the most prolific writer of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, both seem to think that being without a family can actually be a gift. If you don't believe that, I'm not here to try to make you feel guilty. What I'm just trying to show you is there's another way to think about these things. Human beings are highly programmable. Jesus would like to program your mind differently than the culture, than society would like to do. Those of us who have a call to remain single for life, to be without the family that we long for, from Jesus' perspective, is to be free, to serve God in a way that those who have a family cannot. And this is so evident to me here at True North Church. I can give you a tangible example you can chew on. You may know this, you may not, but every Sunday morning in our kids' classes, we have a large percentage of our kids' volunteers who are single young men and women. And they're not back there trying to find each other. Okay, I I just trust me. I know Megan Howes, our kids director, not going to fly. Okay, they are there to provide responsible Bible teaching, to be impactful and present in the lives of children who need a village to raise them. And they're doing that for the benefit of those of you who have a marriage, who are with them the other six days and 23 hours a week so that you can sit under this Bible teaching. And so we have seen, even in our own midst, an opportunity for somebody who has the gift of singleness to serve the rest of the body uniquely that you can sit together, that you can be present under the teaching of the word of God. We are tempted to believe that without a family, our lives are insignificant. Jesus says that our significance is in him and that we derive our value from being his child, not from whether or not we have children of our own. Your second temptation regarding families as an idol, you will be tempted to believe that burdened by family, your life will become insignificant. So this is the inverse of the previous temptation. And this happens primarily to those who are going to have a child but don't want to. So I'll be more brief here because this is not as prevalent in the church, thankfully. But I do want to say, seeing a child as a burden, even seeing a child as an unnecessary burden, is not limited to people who are outside of the church of Jesus. Some of you know Greg Monrad. Greg is the director of the Community Pregnancy Center in town. And Greg has told me multiple stories of women whom he knows personally who have prayed to God for forgiveness as they are driving to their abortion appointment. They've said to God, God, forgive me for this thing that I'm about to do. I think sometimes we believe the cultural and societal lie that it's blissful to go and get rid of a child, but it still grieves the soul. 
It's a, it's a position of desperation. It's a woman on her knees at the altar of Heket saying, free me from this thing. I feel enslaved by what this will do to my life. I feel enslaved by what this will do to my reputation. Even people within the church, the reason I, I gave you that specific example is because these are Christian women. These are women who are trying to follow Jesus, who have believed the lie that God will not sustain them through this motherhood. They've believed the lie that God will not sustain their unborn child. These are women who could not believe that their church would accept them. Women who could not believe that their church would love them or would walk with them through that new life. And the point for you and I is that we desperately need our attitude changed about women who become pregnant by way of affairs or who have been raped or who have been abandoned by their child's father. What our culture expects is for you and I to reject them because of the sin and to never see past the sin to the legitimate need. That's what our culture expects. I wonder why that's become our reputation. Our reputation is that we are passionate about the rights of the unborn, but that we care very little for those who have been born unless they've been born again. So some word play and play there. We tend to look and see and take care of our own, but, but that's our reputation. And I'm not arguing that this is accurate for all of us everywhere, but this is the baseline from which we operate in our culture. This is what is expected of us, and doing very little or even doing nothing only serves to continue to reinforce that that is a fair and accurate expectation. It's evidence that affirms the culture. When we minister to people in our culture, when we see an unwanted child, instead of seeing them as a leech or a burden or a problem to be solved, we go another way. In 1 John, John writes and indicts our apathy toward mothers of the unborn. He says this in 1 John 3. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can, how does God's love abide in him? The temptation to run from family is remedied by embracing Jesus' love. If God's love abides in us, then we will love the unborn. We will love their mothers, we will love our own children, and we will love each other. The love of God is the only thing that can permanently replace our idols of self in our hearts. And as we follow Jesus, that's exactly what will happen. It's a guarantee for us as we walk in his way, as we learn about him, as we love him. And I said I would be brief, so I'll just mention that aside from abortion, certain attitudes of prolonging childlessness, especially among younger people, in order to preserve a career or to avoid subjecting our children to the wounds we carry from our family of origin, these attitudes also find themselves rooted in the idolatry of family instead of the worship of Jesus, and therefore the worship of Jesus is the solution to them, to our minds being changed. Third temptation about family. You will be tempted to believe that a family offers you a shot at redemption. And this primarily happens to those who have families and become consumed by them. We all want redemption. All of us do. We want healing. We want another chance to get it right. But what we turn to and who we expect to give us that opportunity is a reliable way to discern who or what our God actually is. So how do you define what a God is or an idol? Well, functionally, I would define it this way. I would say that your gods are where you put your faith and what you give allegiance to. The story of the Bible is full of hundreds of examples demonstrating how placing our faith or allegiance in anything other than Yahweh ultimately leads to disaster. And we know these stories, right? We teach them to our children. We, we tell them Adam and Eve chose faith in Satan's promises. They chose allegiance to their own potential over Yahweh, and it resulted in disaster for them. The people of Babylon placed their faith in themselves. They placed their allegiance in this tower city they were able to get together and build, and it ended in disaster for them. King David put his faith in his own ability to cover up an unplanned pregnancy with a married woman and then have her husband killed. He believed he could do that sufficiently, and his allegiance was frankly to his own libido. 
Balaam, Pharaoh, Jephthah. Remember Jephthah? The judge who swore an oath to God that God never asked for, and then when Jephthah got back home, he had to kill his own daughter because he was too proud to admit that he'd been wrong to swear that oath in the first place. The list is endless. So my question is why, for so many who claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, why do our children actually sit on God's throne? Why do our children have our faith? Why do our children have our allegiance? I believe that this is a product of the idols of our culture. Our children are society's only vehicle for redemption. We don't have any other mode, we don't have any other system of redemption in broad secular society than to get it right with our kids, to do better than our parents did with us. That's really our only hope. Society believes that the only way to make up for the sins of the past is to raise our children the right way. Now, we can't agree on what that means. Uh, This is in part why you've seen critical race theory and the doctrines of anti-racism being so rapidly adopted by school districts. It's because we are scared to death of not doing everything we possibly can for our children, and it's instinctual to many of us. We aren't even really thinking anymore. We read a book, we hear a podcast, we catch an episode of Oprah, we stumble across an internet friend's post about their parenting philosophy, and we just drink. We just, we don't even think about it. We don't dip our finger in first and go, oh, is this good? Is this right? What would God say about this? Is this a shift in my mentality? We just go, it worked for them, it'll work for me. Because we're desperate. Because we don't have security. People don't go looking for something they already have. If if we're desperate to find a philosophy, a system that's going to help us be better, it's because we don't think we have one already. This is what I mean when I say an idol. We're not just talking about a bad idea. This is replacing the role of God in our lives. Our children become our gods. We live among swarms of little gods, all demanding our attention, our resources, our worship. And we believe that the temptation that we can find real life in and through them. So we take the eyes of our soul off of Jesus and we put them onto our kids. So let's take that to its logical end. If God showed the folly of worship of Heket by filling the homes of the Egyptians with frogs, let's just do the same. Let's imagine where does this get us when we worship our children as gods? It leads to wholesale disaster. Just like every other time in scripture that people give their faith and allegiance to something other than Yahweh, it leads to wholesale disaster. Our homes become child-centered. And in a cruel twist of the way that humanity works, our kids aren't even happy in a home like this. They don't like it. They don't say thank you. The pressure to be exactly what we have in our mind's eye is suffocating. It is soul-crushing. It births real, legitimate trauma in the lives of our children that they have to pay a professional to unpack down the road for them. That is what worship of another person will do to that person, and we end up ignoring our marriages. That's the collateral damage. We ignore our friendships, we ignore our community, and then eventually we ignore God, at least functionally we do. We might still have that nice Bible verse that hangs above our TV, but the way that we live our lives is centered on the kids. And even though we drag our little idols to church and we force them to learn Bible verses and Bible stories, we become incapable of discipling them in the way of Jesus. We teach them by example. The Bible reading and prayer, even talking about Jesus, are children's activities because we never do those things. We only demand that our children do. And as our children begin to grow into their own talents and abilities, we allow those proficiencies, we allow their potential to drive Jesus and his church to the margins of our lives to the margins of their lives. And then, this is the extreme end of where this goes, our little gods leave the temple. They turn 18 and they leave. And we don't have them anymore. These people that we've focused on, we experience a kind of soul death when they are gone from us. You have known people who've lived this. You've seen it. 
The child leaves the house. The parents don't know how to exist. They cannot imagine that they could have a life without doting upon and being all focused on, on their child. When they arrive in their new town, they build their own relationships. We are shocked that they want nothing to do with Jesus and his church. Now, where could they have learned that Jesus only wants to teach kids good manners and good morals? Where could they have seen almost anything else take priority over regular, rhythmic, disciplined worship in the home? What could it be that discipled them into believing that they are the greatest, that they can do no wrong, and that the world is lucky to have them? Church, I believe that this is the defining factor in how a missional, Jesus-loving church plant can become a cultural bastion against the world. We become so consumed with our children that we become scared of Jesus. We fear the very thing that drew us into life with him in the first place. We don't trust him with our lives and futures. We can't believe that we could ever actually have a life without our children anymore. We become so wrapped up in who they are, and we find Jesus to be too radical, too unsafe, and too others-focused for us to be able to both follow him and keep our eyes on our little gods. And so we pick what we love. So what can we do if our lack of family to belong to is remedied by belonging to Jesus? And if avoiding family to preserve life is remedied by embracing Jesus' love, what do we do when our children have become too important? The answer to this last temptation is in Exodus chapter 8, in verse 12. In verse 12, Moses and Aaron cry out to Yahweh. They cry out to him on behalf of Pharaoh, a Pharaoh who has just seen one of his gods fall at the feet of the Lord. And God answers them. He brings them peace and he ends his judgment. But again, see the Pharaoh's response. He hardens his heart and he will not listen. I believe that the Pharaoh in this story is hardened for our sake so that we can learn from him what happens when we encounter our God and walk away resistant. We see in him the self-destruction of a person who doubles down on his own pride even when faced with defeat and the defeat of his idols or ideologies. I am speaking to you today because I want more for you than that. And I believe that Jesus wants so much more for you than that kind of self-destruction. So my invitation is simple, to trust God. To not wait until later, but to do it today, to do it now. How do you do that? Well, you have to start with your future. You have to believe that he has something better for you tomorrow than you could build for yourself. You have to trust him with your singleness. You have to trust him with your loneliness, with your infertility, with your unplanned pregnancy, with your children and their future, and God's ability to draw them into his family and love them better than you ever could. These are easy things to say. They are incredibly hard to let go of and give to God in truth. So within your heart and within your mind, in the places where your thoughts and dreams live, alongside your fears and your doubts, let go of your idols. That's the first step. Just loosen your grip a little bit. Admit to yourself what you already know, what you've been running from. It isn't working. You know it isn't working. The reason you're laughing at different points in what I've said this morning is because these are real experiences that you've had. You've seen people self-destruct in the name of their kids or in the name of preserving themselves from children or in the name of desperately doing everything they possibly can to the point that they abandon the life God has given them just to have a child. You've seen it. Jesus wants to save you from that. The things that you have made your life about, they're not giving you life, not really. Not if they're not Christ. They're draining the life out of you. So allow God to do what he does. Allow him to tear those idols down. God does not tear our idols down because he wants to hurt us. He doesn't do it to shame us. He doesn't do it to leave us empty. Jesus clears out space in our hearts, in our minds, so that there is room for him. And so if you have seen today or heard of an idol of yours in the frogs of Egypt, you don't have to be offended. You can be, that's okay. You don't have to be 
defensive about that. You don't need to play the justification game in your brain with yourself or your life group this week. You can just be thankful that God loves you enough to tell you the truth. It's possible, I would say even probable, that there are already people around you who've seen these things and know how sensitive they are, and they are not going to get within 30 feet of you when your nerves are raw about your kids or lack thereof. But God loves you enough that he'll just run through that distance. He'll just go, hey, come here really quick. This is going on, and I need you to hear me. And I think that's what he's trying to communicate today. You can be thankful that God has loved you in a real and tangible and incarnate way, in a way that makes war on our idols so that we may know him and love him. So let us cry out to God on each other's behalf. Let us follow Moses and Aaron's um, prescriptive plan here. When we see people around us who are still loving their idols or who are desperate to be rid of them, instead of condescending to those people, let us speak to God on their behalf. Let us ask God, petition him, beg him to show up in their lives, to fill the void that they feel, that they can sense with every fiber of their being that they're missing something. That's true. But the thing that you're missing is not a kid. The thing that you're missing is not your child's future, their future success. You are missing Jesus, and you can have him. You can have him today. May we celebrate the God who tears down our idols. May we find our family, our future, and our greatest love in him alone. I'd like to pray for you. Father, we, like centuries of people before us, come before you with unclean hands and unclean lips. Our hands are stained with our idols with the residue of the things that we've clung to so tightly. And God, our lips are full of the parroted phrases and philosophies of people who don't care about you and say that they care about us, but really don't. They really only care about themselves, God, and we mimic those things. We consume them hours a week. We're online listening to people we don't know tell us things they have no business saying to us. And so God, would you protect us from that? Would you make us a people... We're not separate from the world so that we can wave some kind of flag and say that we're better. Would you separate us for our own good? Save us. We mean that. In the most active sense, God, rescue us. We are drowning in this stuff. We love you. We need you desperately to meet us here, God. As we come now to your table, would you remind us that you have cleansed us of our sin, those of us who've called upon your name, that you've brought us near, that you give us life, and that that connects us to each other. We're not alone. You've remedied our loneliness. You've remedied our fear by giving us a body and giving us yourself. Father, we love you. That's why we pray to you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.